we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Okay, here's the situation our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome back to Hashtag Sistersinlaw with Jill Winebanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. This week, we'll be talking about the request by the Department of Justice for all of the transcripts that the January 6th committee has put together. We'll also talk about the tragic shooting in Buffalo and the Great Replacement Theory. And we'll talk about some of the practical consequences we're starting to see from the potential end of Roe versus Wade. And as always, we'll look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Uh, first, I wanted to, one, acknowledge that um, uh, our, our friend and colleague, Pete Williams, is retiring from NBC News and wondered yeah. what you guys thought about that. He's terrific. Have you guys had some interactions with Pete? Oh, I have. I mean, I Pete was one of the first reporters that I met when I started covering the court. Um, gosh, 15 years or so ago now. And he was always so good. I knew if my analysis was anything close to his that I was um, on, the, on the right track. But he also is just the nicest guy. I mean, everything from when my friends and I were planning a trip to Wyoming, that's where he's from. And he gave a ton of recommendations of things to do and was totally helpful um, to just being a genuine, genuine guy when I see him at the court or at NBC. Um, and just, you know, you knew his analysis was good and his reporting was spot on. So it's the end of an era. It really is. He's been with NBC for, what, 30 years. It's it's like amazing. He is what I think of when I think of the Department of Justice or the Supreme Court in terms of reporting. And it was really only recently that I realized he's not a lawyer. 
He gives the best explanations. He really understands in a very deep and profound way what the cases are about and can explain them in ways that are understandable to lawyers and to the average citizen. He is remarkable and he will be very much missed. So one of my favorite things about Pete was occasionally you'd get, you know, an early on a Saturday morning call or you'd be goofing around late in the afternoon and and your phone would say Pete Williams. And he would have a question and he would always preface it by saying, now I'm not a lawyer, but... And then he would proceed to um, have a really strong analysis of whatever the issue was. And I'm going to try to tell a story without implicating who was actually involved. But one day he called me about a statute and he said, what do you think the penalty is for this statute? And I knew the reason for the call is that the statute is ambiguous and DOJ takes a certain view of it. And Pete said to me, I just don't think that that's right, because if you look to, and he had gone two or three statutes back to see the how it referred and what the congressional intent was, and he said, it's clear to me that the statute should be something entirely different, don't you think? And so I did all of the reading, and I thought, wow, he's absolutely right, and the typical way that we've done this is incorrect. Long story short, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office that was involved ultimately issued an amended press release adopting the Pete Williams view of what the statutory sentence was. And I've always loved that so much, but he was such a, um, he had a very nice manner when he did that. That wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I'm the smartest guy in the room. It was like, can can we figure this out together? And so I'm going to miss that and miss Pete very much. Um, Pete, thanks for being a friend to all of us um, during our time with MSNBC and NBC. Yeah, he's terrific, a real pro. And I, I too, Jill, did not know he was not a lawyer until, you know, you started seeing some of these stories about his career. I, I always assumed he was a lawyer because he really is so on on top of it with stories about DOJ and stories about the Supreme Court. So I think uh, everyone will miss him, um, a, real, a real pro. I had another thing I wanted to ask you about before we get into our substantive topics, if that's okay. Uh, because all of you are uh, wordsmiths and you care about words and you choose your words carefully. And I wanted to talk with you about um, something I'm working through, and that is the use of the word they as the pronoun for all situations and not using he or she. And I, I'm hearing more of it lately. I'm hearing it, I think I, I'm reading it more. I think I think maybe even the Washington Post has started doing this. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense. It, uh, we, 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 it, it, it respects uh, gender fluidity, and it's a lot easier than having to guess at someone's gender to just say they. But, you know, it's been so ingrained in me all my life that the um, noun verb has to match intense. So if it's, a, you know, a singular person, you should be saying he, and then the verb should be singular. So I'm really struggling with it. But I'm curious about, um, about where you guys come down on this. Jill, let me start with you. You're the old school. What, uh, you're, you studied journalism back in the day. Have you um, changed your lexicon to incorporate they, or um, are, you, are you still using he, she, they? I mostly still use he, she. And there are several reasons, but I want to go back because you mentioned my journalism training. And I remember early in my journalism training, I wrote something and I used the word girlfriend. And my professor said, crossed out the girl part and said, a friend is a friend, doesn't matter. I said, but a boyfriend is different than a friend. And he said, no, it isn't. 
well, I still sort of think it is, but it did alert me to the issue. And I'm also old enough that when I was growing up, uh, when I first became a professional, there was no Ms. You were either Miss or Mrs. And I learned to accommodate that, not only to accommodate it, but to embrace it and to use, although I'm very happily married, I use Ms. because my marital status has nothing to do with who I am. Um, I'm also old enough that Esquire was not allowed to be used for women. Esquire was my what? first husband. Yes. My first husband would get mail from Columbia addressed to him, comma, Esquire, and I would get it to Mrs. with his last name. That's infuriating. And I said, if they ever expected to get a penny from me, that they would start calling me Esquire because I had earned that. Absolutely. I had in, in the, I'm trying to remember, I think it was in the Fourth Circuit when I appeared, they actually typed two S's. You know, when you get admitted on motion, it says blank Esquire. They typed uh-huh. two S's after my name so that I was Esquire-S because they couldn't oh let it be. <laughs> so, okay, so I'm used to dealing with this gender prone. Seriously, these are true stories. Oh. They are. And I, I would like to try. I mean, if someone sends me something that says they as part of their gender, I, I would honor that. But for most people, and as a journalist also, I think it's very difficult, and I can't wait to hear Kim discuss, discuss this, when you are writing a story and there's a man and a woman dis- described in it, and then you say they, as to one of them, which are you referring to if you don't say he or she? How does the reader know which you're referring to? So, and the last thing I'll say on this is I really wish they would invent a new word. They is a word that has a commonly accepted meaning, and you're right about the, the verb that follows they is, that sounds really ungrammatical to me, but if you're referring to a he or a she previously, it would be he is, she is, they is, no, they are. So I would like them to come up with a gender neutral pronoun that would be fine for one or multiple people of multiple genders. And I think that's not so impossible that we can't be creative enough to come up with the right word. And I'd love to hear Kim on this, and I'd love to hear our readers send in their opinions on this and their suggestions for what a gender-neutral word would be. Um, So, yeah. So my opinion is that it's more ado than it's necessary, Right. So one thing that I um, sort of took from it is, and I'm forgetting the name of it now, I should have written it down for this segment. But you know, in France, unlike in America, France, the French are very particular about their language. And any change in the language has to go through this like panel that has to approve it and, you know, decree that it is a uh, proper French word, right? Well, that panel recently decided to adopt and decree a gender-neutral pronoun. Now, you know in France, they are very masculine and feminine, and there is not a lot of room in between. If it's a man, it's il, ille, and if it's a woman, it's el, elle. Well, this panel approved the use of il, I think I'm saying it right, I-E-L, for gender-neutral. So I'm like, okay, if this very picky particular panel can figure this out, so can we here in America with our lackadaisical English rules figure it out. I am with you. I have always been a grammar nerd. 
You know, I get very particular about grammar. Um, The only person more particular is probably my husband, uh, who insists after I text him, I love you, he texts back, I love you, comma, too, which is the nerdiest of nerdiest things, right? Um, But even I have come to accept he, she, they. My rule is whoever is identifying themselves gets to pick. So if you want to go by they... And I always use, and so far every person who identifies as they has used the um, verb are for to be. Um, I'm going to use that. In terms of journalism and what we do, I'm a newspaper writer, so on second reference, you always use the last name. So it's not even a problem, right? Um, You don't really use he or she or they or any other pronoun at all. You try to be as specific as you can and you use the person's name. Um, I have not found it to be a problem. I have a lot of uh, people of all genders in my life, and it's always worked out. So I think if we relax about it a little bit, it'll be okay. How about you, Joyce? Have you incorporated it or are you a, 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 a traditionalist? So um, I have both students and family members who prefer the use of they. And it's it's a shift. I'll tell you what, what horrifies me is occasionally I just forget or I do it wrong and I'm mm-hmm. always embarrassed because my whole goal is, you, you know, I mean, we all get to define who we are. If somebody wants me to call them they, I am really happy to do that. And what I particularly have appreciated um, have been the students who've like walked me through it and helped me understand how to do it with sensitivity. So I'm all for the use of they. I'm not really as bothered by grammar, but the grammar Nazi in my house is my husband. So I'm I'm good with it. (laughs) So I'm trying to actually take a step and proactively start using they for all gender um, uh, pronouns. Though, Jill, I share your um, uh, pain in, you know, they they are, he is, you know, that the verb tense doesn't match up. And so that it causes me great anguish, but probably not as much anguish as the poor person who's being referred to by the wrong gender pronoun. And, you know, there is a word, Zay, Z-E, that is the English version of the L that Kim just mentioned. So I think we're going to get there someday. You know, people said, oh, what are we going to do in the Supreme Court when we can't say Mr. Justice Jackson? Well, how about we just say Justice uh, O'Connor and we don't have to use the Mr. Justice? You know, I think language constantly evolves. I'm old enough to have been alive for to, for the evolution of you know Negro to colored to black to African American, and I think it's up to us to keep up and try to evolve and try to pay attention to these things. And after this conversation, I'm going to write a letter to Columbia Law School and tell them Jill Wine Banks <laughs> earned a degree from you, and they should be referred to as Esquire. <laughs> and they are now doing that. I do get Columbia Mail addressed to Jill Wine Banks, comma Esquire. Good. So they have evolved, and I have evolved, and I will keep on evolving. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today, and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. So what seems like what has been two parallel universes are finally intersecting now. 
the Department of Justice is requesting transcripts of interviews that have been conducted by the January 6th committee. But in a surprise move, at least to me, the committee said not so fast. So let's break this down. Barb, what does the DOJ want and why on earth wouldn't the members of the January 6th committee say, yes, please, here it is and let us put a bow on top? Yeah, so this is such an interesting story. The Department of Justice has asked the January 6th committee for transcripts of the testimony of almost a thousand witnesses now who have testified before the committee. And so this is the surest sign yet that DOJ is looking at the much bigger picture here, not just the physical attack on the Capitol on January 6th, but the whole enchilada, you know, everything about the planning of the coup and everything else, which I think is very reassuring. And, you know, what it says to me is this isn't like they've entered a new phase. What it says to me is they've been looking at this all along. You know, Lisa Monaco gave a great talk about this last week where she kind of repeated some of the things that Merrick Garland had said on January 5th, which is, you know, we, we investigate crimes, not people. And so we take what's in front of us and we build from there and we let the facts dictate where we go. And they've reached a point now, you know, no doubt in the early stages, they were doing things that are covert, like, using grand jury subpoenas to get records and using sealed search warrants to get the content of email and text messages. But they've now reached a phase where they're ready to go overt. And as long as the committee has accumulated these thousand transcripts, well, why not look at them and make your investigation shorter? Uh, It may be they read some of these and decide to discard. We don't need to talk to this person. We don't need to talk to this person. But they may find some very good sworn testimony. And rather than reinvent the wheel or lock someone into a story and have them possibly contradict themselves on minor details in a way that could be used against them later on cross-examination. Just, you know, take these at face value and then decide among these handful of people that they they want to talk to again, maybe to ask different questions, they can use that. So it's a huge time saver. And I agree, Kim, you would think that the January 6th committee, if their goal is uh, to hold accountable people responsible for the attacks on the Capitol, that they would be only too eager to hand over all of these transcripts. So what gives? Why not? Well, one of the things I heard Chairman Benny Thompson say was, we're not prepared to turn them over yet. And so I think this is more of a timing issue than anything. You know, they have really hyped these January, uh, sorry, June 9th uh, hearings that are going to begin televised in prime time where they're going to have the big reveal. Uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin has talked about, we're going to blow the roof off this place. You know, they've really hyped it. And I think one thing they might be trying to avoid is kind of what we saw in the um, Robert Mueller investigation. You know, as the little facts dripped out over many months, I think the impact of them lost some of their power by the time we heard the whole picture. And it was a little bit of a whimper. Uh, I think that the committee has been strategically holding back some details because they they do want to blow the lid off the off the roof in in June, and people will tune in and they will be appalled by what they see. And I think that the concern is if they turn it over to the Justice Department, it may be that some of this information gets out and they lose control over it. Um, in the same way, if they give it to DOJ, do they also have to give it to Georgia where they're doing an investigation or any other place? So I think it's really more of a timing thing. But this is you know that whole typical dance of negotiation and accommodation. Maybe they want to extract a promise, like maybe you ought to charge Mark Meadows for not complying with our subpoena if you want these things. I doubt Mm -hmm. DOJ will agree to any of those conditions, but I think they're going to get them, but maybe not until after the hearings in June. 
So Joyce, can this be a two-way street in some other ways besides what Barb was talking about? For example, could Chairman Thompson work out a deal with DOJ that gives the committee certain evidence that the DOJ has in exchange for providing access to their transcripts to the DOJ? I think that's really unlikely because mm-hmm. most of the evidence that the committee would want from DOJ would have been obtained using a grand jury subpoena or other restricted collection mechanisms, and DOJ is prohibited from turning that sort of evidence over. There actually is an exception to that. You can get a court order that permits you to turn over grand jury information. I think it's unlikely here uh, because DOJ is pre-charged. Presumably, if they're um, considering charging, probably pre-prosecutive decision-making, and it would be a very compromising for their case to do it now. Um, so I don't see that happening. And, you know, to this larger environmental question of what the heck is going on um, with the, you'll forgive me, pissing match between the committee and DOJ, I think it really is just that. You know, DOJ, for reasons that make sense if you're inside of DOJ, is not always forthcoming with people on the outside. That's because they operate under a lot of ethical restrictions, but it can come off as a little bit haughty when you're on the other side. I think the committee probably took umbrage at some of the early um, failure to communicate. And so they'll air this little grievance for another 48 hours, and then everybody will get on the same team and line up. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Jill, if Chairman Thompson remains cagey, can the DOJ subpoena the committee for what it wants? Well, remember that they sent a letter that says, you may have evidence of crimes that we are investigating. So that would certainly give them some grounds for going ahead. But I want to add a few other points. One is, during Watergate, we were very successful in coordinating with the ongoing Senate committee hearings and ultimately with the House Judiciary Committee, which was the impeachment committee. And we did get court permission to turn over evidence uh, on the day that we returned indictments, we sim- at that same exact time asked for permission to turn over a roadmap to impeachment to the House Judiciary Committee. And so all this coordination helped all three entities, the Senate, the House, and the prosecutors. And I think it certainly could in this case. We didn't want the House to have to reinvent the wheel or redo things. We also didn't want them getting inconsistent information at the Senate that was preceding us as we were getting, so we wanted to make sure we followed what they were doing. It really helps in the prosecution. It helps in the the purpose of the Senate and the impeachment committee in terms of passing post-Watergate legislation. All of that coordination really paid off. And I think Barb is right that this is a question of timing that this isn't, we're never going to give it to you, that we don't want you to have it. Of course they want them to have it. I think it's right that, I, I, I guess I have to ask, why did justice wait until a month before, less than a month before the hearings are starting, when they could have waited a few more weeks once the information is public, I can't imagine that there'd be any reason why they wouldn't give the full transcripts. And Barb was also correct in stating why those transcripts are important, why they will be helpful, and how much harm they can avoid by 
the uh, prosecutors having them in advance. So I think this will ultimately work out. But in the meantime, it's really not a good look for either the Department of Justice or for the committee. And I wish it had not been done this way so that it wouldn't look bad, but ultimately it will work out fine. So, Barb, you mentioned that last week uh, uh, Lisa Monaco talked about how the Department of Justice does its work and how it works outside of political influence. What's really remarkable about it is that when you mentioned this to us before the show, I hadn't heard about it. It didn't get a lot of media coverage and I had to actually go uh, find it. So I'll start with you, Barb. What do you think our listeners should take away from her words about the way the DOJ works? Yeah, I think she was trying to explain to the public the way the Justice Department does its work. You know, it's frustrating, I think, for people who don't understand, why aren't they investigating Trump? Why haven't they said they're investigating Trump? Of course, we can all see right before us that he's committed all these crimes. And I, I think what she said is, We don't talk about investigations because we don't want to tip off targets that we're looking at them. They might destroy evidence. They might work with others to get their stories straight. Um, And it also puts a cloud over a person who may ultimately not be charged uh, or it could taint their rights to a fair trial, which could actually screw up the prosecution if you've talked about it before they've been charged. So there are a lot of reasons that that's the DOJ policy to neither confirm nor deny the existence of an investigation. But when something happens right before your eyes, as it did on January 6th, she did mention we prosecute crimes, not people. And so, of course, we're prosecuting that situation. We're investigating and we've promised to hold accountable Anybody at any level, whether they were at the Capitol or not, uh, you know, and and hold them accountable to, you know, the highest uh, possible crime under the law. I don't know what more you can say uh, to telegraph to people that, look, we get it. We realize this is a big deal. We understand the frustration. We understand people get frustrated when you say be patient, but we get it. But we are not going to say, you know what, we're going to look at so-and-so and and see if the evidence can prove that they committed a crime. That's just not how it works. And so um, I am confident that this group, when you've got, you know, Lisa Monaco, tremendous public servant, Vanita Gupta there, you know, fantastic public servant, Merrick Garland, fantastic public servant, on the day when they do unveil the charges at the highest levels, I think it's going to be all the more credible because they did things by the book. So I think she was, um, you know, just trying to assure the public that this is how we do things and we get it and we're on it. Joyce, Jill, anything to add to that? You know, I would just say this was Lisa Monaco's um, we don't talk about Bruno speech, right? (laughs) We don't say that we're investigating Trump or that we're prosecuting Trump. But I, I think if you listen, they're saying all the right things. They're saying we follow the evidence wherever it goes. Merrick Garland said that on January 5th. Both he and Lisa Monaco have repeatedly said that since then. I think that they're trying to send as clear of a signal as DOJ is capable of sending. Where I sort of vary from Barb on this is I do think that there is room in the regulations and sound policy that suggests that there are some situations where you can go a little bit further. When the public is aware of a situation, when it will do great public good to confirm the fact that there's some investigation ongoing, I think it makes sense. DOJ did that in Ferguson. It often happens in that civil rights context. Um, But I am constantly stunned by how much more we know about the investigation into Hunter Biden's laptop than we know about the investigation into an effort to overthrow an election. 
And doesn't that say it all? I mm. think that, Joyce, you've captured it exactly. Although I would be on the side of this might be the situation that requires more forthcomingness. And I do think that the latest statement from Lisa was definitely a step beyond what Merrick Garland had said, and that it's a good step and should be reassuring, even to me, who, as you know, has been, I think, the most skeptical of all of us um, in terms of what's going on and why is it taking so long. And there's low-hanging fruit that they could act on. And I'm feeling reassured. So I think that everyone in our audience should. All right. If y'all say so. I think I'm the most skeptical, actually. But if y'all say so, I'll believe you. You're right up there. (laughs) (laughs) I have faith. I have faith. (laughs) So last question. Let's do it in a lightning round. This month, we've also learned that members of the Oath Keepers have been making plea deals and cooperating both with the FBI and with the January 6th committee. What do you think might come of this? And is this big news? Jill, I'll start with you. The quick answer in a lightning round is yes, it's big news and it's good news. I think that these are people who clearly have been, or I shouldn't say clearly, who it appears have been in touch with top level politicians, allegedly, um, from what I read in the press, in the reliable mainstream press that checks its sources. I think that there is enough evidence there to suggest that they can be helpful in linking the planning of the event, the violence of the event, and the broader part of the event. Because I don't think that the January 6th invasion of the Capitol is really the whole important part of this. What's important is they try to overturn the election outcome through many, many sources. And this is one part of it that will have you know, influence and should be indicted. And I think this is Big news, good news. Joyce and Barb? So, you know, I have always thought that the meetings that we read so much about in the press for a while, these uh, Willard Hotel war room meetings that were being conducted by Trump allies, are one of the best vehicles, if you're a prosecutor, to get into the White House and figure out what's going on there. With these Oath Keeper and Proud Boy cases, there is a link to Roger Stone. Everybody knows Roger Stone doesn't want to spend even one night in prison, right? He made that really clear when he was negotiating with Trump for a pardon. Um, And so I suspect that if, you know, the Oath Keepers who were, I I get confused whether it was the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys who were protecting Roger Stone, but one of them was, it was Oath Keepers, right? And I think if there are witnesses there who can get close to Roger Stone, close enough to get DOJ into prosecution territory with him, he could become the witness that goes then into the Willard War Room and on into the White House. I think this is a huge development. It was Roger Stone who was flanked by Oath Keepers. I'm sorry, Barb. Yeah, I I, I agree um, that I think this is exactly the kind of thing that, that Lisa Monaco and Merrick Garland have described, the way the Justice Department builds cases. They look at people who've committed crimes in plain sight, they charge them, and they squeeze them. They say, you know, they use them as leverage. If you are uh, willing to plead guilty and cooperate, we will make a recommendation to the judge to give you a reduced sentence. And so, you know, there's sometimes there's honor among thieves, but most of the time not. They sing like canaries. And although you don't want to rely completely on the word of 
uh, a defendant who is looking out for his own neck when he's providing information, they can provide a lot of really important leads. They can tell you the when and the where and the who and the why of what happened. And then what investigators can do is go shore that up with records and find phone records and bank records and text messages and other things that can corroborate what they said. So I think the cooperation of the Oath Keepers, these are the only people so far charged with seditious conspiracy, by the way. I think mm-hmm. the you know if they're looking for people at the next level up, that can only be, you know, these planners like the, the Willard Hotel crowd. And so I do think this is a good development. An 18-year-old white racist radicalized by the Great Replacement Theory is accused of driving nearly 200 miles killing 10 people and wounding three others at a Topps supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood of Buffalo, New York. Of the 13 victims shot, 11 were black. Evidence suggests he selected this area by looking for the place nearest his home with the highest concentration of black residents. He surrendered to police and was quickly arraigned and then indicted by a grand jury on murder charges. Authorities are continuing to investigate the shooting as a hate crime and an act of racially motivated violent extremism. I want to start with you, Joyce, and ask a couple of real quick questions about what's the penalty in New York State for murder and what's the penalty for hate crimes, New York versus federal law, and why does the three-hour drive become important and why the quick arraignment? Um, So lots of really important questions here. First off, the big difference between New York state charges and federal charges is that federal charges are death eligible. There could be capital punishment. And that matters a lot to some people. So so that's something um, that I think we should focus on. You know, the three-hour drive is relevant in large part because it shows premeditation. There's no way that you can argue that you didn't premeditate a homicide that you drove three hours to commit after a year of this very verbose planning on his um, social media and sending notes to himself. So this is, at a minimum, first-degree murder. And it's important to get him arraigned quickly. It means that you can hold him in custody, you can continue to gather evidence and sort out which jurisdiction will um, engage in, will take the lead in the prosecution. But he's in custody from this point on. You know, New York doesn't have a death penalty. Technically, they do, but it hasn't been used since the early 1960s. And it's been held unconstitutional under state law. So that means the only death penalty option would be 18 U.S. Code Section 245, which prohibits killing someone when they're engaging in federally protected activities, which going to the grocery store and driving on the roads and all of all of that sort of activity has been used under that standard. However, I think it's important to have the death penalty conversation here. Um, Merrick Garland has been reviewing some of the regs that were put in place while Trump was in office. I think it's not entirely clear to me that there's appetite at DOJ to bring new capital cases. Um, And to be honest, whether you're a supporter of the death penalty or not, and and just to state my bias, I'm not. I don't think that we should use it. I don't want to be on a list with North Korea and Saudi Arabia. Um, But, you know, in past cases where DOJ has charged the death penalty 
in jurisdictions that had rejected having a death penalty. And I'm thinking um, of New York's neighbor, Vermont. Those cases don't always go very well. Um, There was a case right before Barb and I became U.S. attorneys in Vermont that was actually a capital conviction. The jury convicted, the case got commuted. There is a case that was um, ongoing while we were U.S. attorneys, and ultimately that case was pled to a sentence of life in prison. Of course, there are cases in Massachusetts involving um, the marathon bombing that had a different outcome, but it's really tough to be a federal prosecutor going into a state that doesn't have the death penalty and telling a jury in that state that they should execute the defendant. So a lot of reasons. Federal hate crimes prosecution's always good. Lots of resources. It's an important charge. I'm not sure the death penalty is the right reason to get there. I think we should have a future episode that discusses the pros and cons of the death penalty. Agreed. Uh, that's a great topic. And But for now, I want to move on to Kim and ask you about his motivation, which, you know, Joyce has correctly pointed out, there was clearly premeditation in his three-hour drive and the planning documents that have now been discovered. But tell me a little bit more, if you can, about what the racist, the um, replacement theory is. Yes, I want to get into that. Before I do, I just want to note uh, one of the things that I thought was really dramatic about this case and and maybe we can talk about that in a future episode too, is the fact that this person went in, conducted a mass shooting, a massacre inside of a grocery store, came out, was aiming his gun at himself and others, and somehow the Buffalo police were able to apprehend him alive. So what I would like is for police departments around the country to take this as a case study in how to, if you can apprehend an armed crazy person or, you know, hateful person uh, alive, maybe we can figure out how we can apprehend everyone, including unarmed people, alive. But that's an aside. Um, no, it's not. That's a bravo to Kimberly Atkins store. And I agree with you that that is something that we need to discuss more in yeah. our police reform efforts. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. But now answer my question. (laughs) So now this shooter um, allegedly in uh, this manifesto that was found talked about something called the great replacement theory. And we have to understand what this is. A lot of people attribute it to uh, 20th century European thought that comes up with this. No, no, no. The great replacement theory is as American as apple pie, is as American as our founding, because it is something that has been a part of our foundation from the beginning. It basically is this idea that uh, a conspiracy theory, really, that people of color, either those who are here or those who are coming here through immigration, there is some grand scheme to try to increase their numbers so that it decreases the numbers of Americans of European heritage and that that is a great threat to white people. And this is apparently something that this shooter um, ascribed to. He was radicalized, apparently, allegedly, um, using various social media platforms. I'm not sure it took the social media platforms because obviously the Great Replacement Theory has existed uh, in our history from the beginning, long before there was social media. So maybe that was just the means that he got there. But there has been this idea about that that has permeated our society from the beginning uh, that is really problematic. It is 
terrible. Um, but that's a- allegedly what he was motivated by. It is hateful. It is aimed not only at black and brown folks, but also Jewish people too. If you remember in Charlottesville, the night before that horrible yes. um deadly event, there were people marching in their button downs and chinos saying Jews will not replace us. That's what the replacement theory is. So it is dangerous. Um, It is alive and well. One in three people, according to one study, agrees that this is actually true. It's frightening and it's terrible and it's a lie. It certainly is. And uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James says that she is going to be investigating Twitch, Discord, and some other platforms that were used by the shooter. And by the way, you notice we are not naming him because we do not want to give him any recognition at all because clearly when he videotaped and FaceTimed himself and showed himself, that was part of his goal. So he should not get that. Um, But let's talk about whether she can actually do this. Can she do anything... Because the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, says platforms are not responsible for the content. And what do you think? Yeah, you know, it's tough. Anytime you're going after social media platforms, the law is so unclear that it's difficult for any prosecutor to sort of rely on that. She she was careful in her language. She said she's investigating um, and didn't make any promises about what would come out of that. Um, I think that is part of the reason why. Now, let's be clear. Section 230 is not a get out of jail free f- card for um social media platforms, if they engage in any sort of crime, federal crime, that is excluded from 230. If they knowingly help someone else um, engage in a crime, it that's excluded for two, from 230. But even then, I think First Amendment principles make this a very murky category. I think the better way to go about this, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, is with robust federal investigation and prosecution of domestic terrorism in the same vein that we have seen for international terrorism. We still can't take more than three ounces of liquids on a plane (laughs) 20 years after the specific threat that was meant to address has been all but eliminated. So why can't we bring that same energy to domestic terrorism? I think that's the goal. Absolutely. And Barb, I want to turn to you as our national security and terrorism expert and if have you talk about how do we stop the radicalization and the resulting conduct and whether we need a domestic terrorism statute that would allow investigation before, as you would say, left of boom and deal with it as we do with foreign terrorism. Yeah, you know what, Jill, I can see that I've been talking to you the way I talk to my kids. I was about to say, have I ever told you about Left of Boom? And apparently you know all about it. <laughs> I tell my kids this all the time. Have I ever told you the story of, the, yes, mom, seven times. And then they'll tell me you know, how the story came out. Like, oh, oh, yeah, I guess I have told you the story. Yeah, I like to say it very dramatically, Left of Boom. Um, but that is, Jill, you've been paying attention. Good job. Left of Boom is this concept that is used within the FBI. And, you know, the concept is you want to stop a terrorist somewhere on the timeline before the moment of attack. So if if boom, the, you know, the bombing, the, the shooting, whatever it is, is the moment um, on a timeline, any, any spot left of that on the timeline 
is, predates the moment of the attack. And so that's what you really want to do. Anybody can prosecute this shooter after the fact. He can be charged with murder in the state. He can be charged with a hate crime uh, by the feds. And that's great, but it's not going to prevent this attack that killed 10 people. And that's what you really want to do. And so because there is not a federal domestic terrorism statute, the FBI does not have a predication, which is, you know, a reasonable belief that a federal offense has been committed to open an investigation and kind of just troll around on social media the way it does for international terrorism cases. So if you believe that there is somebody, you know, they they troll around on social media and if they find somebody talking about ISIS or Al-Qaeda, they can then initiate an investigation and then, you know, send an undercover in and talk to them and say, hey, buddy, yep. um, you have some interesting ideas here. Tell me more. How can I help? And in that way, they can, uh, you know, get them off uh, in an off-ramp um, and uh, engage them in a, in a sting operation and defeat whatever this plot there is by learning about it and, and trying to introduce somebody that will stop it before it happens. Without a domestic terrorism statute, they can't open that kind of investigation. And the reason we don't have one is a, is a laudable one. In the 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of abuse by the FBI. They had a program called COINTEL PRO, uh, Counterintelligence Program, where they targeted people who were Vietnam protesters and civil rights organizers uh, under the guise of national security. And they did all kinds of things to disrupt their work. And so it was after all of those scandals that they implemented a number of protections, one of which is this thing called the DIOG, Domestic Investigations Operations Guide for the FBI. It's like the size of a phone book. Uh, for those of our listeners not young enough, not old enough to know what a phone book is, I'm you know, holding my <laughs> fingers about four inches apart. You know, it's a thick manual and, you know, now it's all uh, electronic, but it describes the necessary predication because it, it puts a lot of obstacles in place to protect First Amendment protected activity, free speech, free assembly, uh, you know, the kinds of things that might be unpopular with a particular uh, administration. So, you know, imagine if um, President Trump wanted to go after online and look for Antifa targets and, and go after them. You know, you can sense the discomfort with having the FBI looking for this stuff. But I think they could do one of two things. One is if they were to enact a domestic terrorism statute focused on conduct, violent conduct designed to achieve a political motive or intimidate a civilian population, that could be a federal offense. We already have one for international terrorism and we're focusing on conduct, not speech. And I think that would be just fine. Because it's been controversial, the other thing that could happen is the FBI could change its DIOG. And that might be easier because that's not an act of Congress. It's so difficult to get Congress to change anything these days. But that would just require DOJ to change these regulations to allow the FBI to investigate cases where there is conversation about domestic terrorism. It's uh, it's a little dicey. I think you'd want to make sure that you're putting enough safeguards in there to prevent investigation from people just for expressing ideas. But well, I Barb, think can to the extent I, anyone talks about violence, should stop it. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Because yeah. not just Christopher Ray, but going back for several FBI directors when they give their uh, annual report, they have been saying to us that the number one threat to Americans, terrorism threat, is domestic, that this is the biggest threat. Yet this, the, the entire apparatus, investigatory apparatus, is still set up to prioritize international terrorism. So why is that not enough 
to make them reexamine their internal policies? Yeah, well, so two things. One is I think the FBI would advocate for a domestic terrorism statute in a heartbeat. I think the thing that has caused them some hesitation is this worry about going back to the way things were pre-COINTELPRO, having all these things in place that allow them to or, or prevent them from opening investigations, even if there is... Um, you know, people talking about the great replacement theory, for example, uh, those are things they can't just start poking around about and, and pushing people to share their views because they're protected by First Amendment uh, rights. But I, I agree with you, Kim. I think the easier fix would be to adjust the diag as opposed to waiting for a, a new statute that Congress is never going to pass. It, it would be certainly the best protection for the FBI if a statute were to be passed. But in the absence of bipartisanship and the absence of the possibility of yeah. them passing such a statute, I think that maybe that is something they have to look at. And, you know, when you're talking about how they could proceed and getting involved in chatting with potential criminals, um, we have to look at what happened in the Governor Whitmer kidnapping case yes. where the possibility of conviction was um, turned, you know, didn't happen because there was this entrapment argument. So they have to be very careful. And, you know, I, I was prosecuting cases far enough back that the FBI, in one of my cases, deliberately let the suspects know that they were onto them because they wanted to stop a killing. And uh, some killers had, mafia killers had, come from Boston, flown to California, and they knew they had weapons with them. And so they actually entered their hotel room illegally and messed it up enough that the killers knew that they were caught. And so they fled town before killing anybody, then got called into a grand jury and indicted for perjury about lying about it. But that was a way of being left of boom, to go to your point, Barb. And so, you know, something needs to be done and I think a statute is one of those things that should be a high priority for Congress. Losing Roe and abortion rights, which now seems inevitable, is going to be devastating. It's not alarmist, it's not excessive to say women will no longer be full participants in our democracy because we will no longer have the right to make decisions about our own bodies. And beyond that direct sort of situation that we're all having to confront, there are collateral consequences to ending Roe. It's important that we factor those into our understanding of what the world will look like without the protections that Roe has kept in place. And we need to focus on that, and I think we will over several episodes of the podcast, because we need to make sure that the focus stays squarely where it belongs on this issue about reversing Roe. It's so easy to get pulled off onto other issues. There's so much going on. The news cycle is insane. But this loss of rights by women is fundamental. So today we thought we would take a look at some of these collateral consequences. And Jill, I'll start with you, our resident expert on the military, since you were once the Army's general counsel. Can you talk about how Roe will impact the military and our combat readiness? It may not seem like it would, but it is a direct impact on combat readiness. 
women are now a significant percentage of the military and perform amazing jobs within the service. They are stationed all around the world and all around the U.S. And that means that if they are stationed in one of the red states that is now going to be completely barring abortions, they will not be able to take care of a problem pregnancy. They will not be able to take care of an unplanned pregnancy without first going to their commander and asking for permission to leave the state because they won't be able to have an abortion within the state. And they will have to take time off. It could hurt their careers. And, and the hurting careers, by the way, is a much broader thing than just within the military. It is an economic harm to all women if they cannot control the timing of their pregnancies and births. So it is a very serious problem. It's unfair to the women in the service who are doing a great job for America to have this happen, but that is going to be a consequence when all of the trigger laws go into effect as soon as Roe is overturned, which, although it hasn't happened yet, we only have seen a draft, it does, as you said, seem inevitable. And I hope that the military will find a way, but because of the Hyde Amendment, the military does not pay for this service, and no military doctor can perform it on base. There may have to be some exception made to allow a federal base to be a place where federal laws govern. This may be something that we could deal with in a federal abortion rights action. There are so many unforeseen consequences of this role being overturned, and this is one of them. So think about combat readiness and the loss of the rights of Roe, and think about what it means for women who are raped, because many of these laws do not have a rape or incense, incest uh, exception, and think about whether that's the state that you want to ever serve in. It will impact recruitment and assignments. You know, I had not thought about military implications at all until I read this incredibly moving opinion piece in the Washington Post that Allison Gill at the Mueller She Wrote podcast wrote. We should put that in our show notes because she talks about being raped while she was in the military and, and filters that into how that will play out for women who find themselves in that situation. Not an uncommon problem in the military where sexual assault is something that it's been difficult to address over the years. And she writes very movingly about that particular problem. You know, Barb, you raised a, a completely Could different issue. Could I just issue. interrupt for a second, uh, yeah, Joyce? Please. Because um, I read Allison's piece and I was deeply moved by it. And I am glad, I think it should definitely be in our show notes so that everyone can read it. But I do want to say that since her time of service, things have improved and the military has gotten much better about women reporting rapes. Uh, it's still not 100% of rapes are not reported. It is still a problem as part of the chain of command, but um, the current Secretary of Defense, Austin, is making progress along that line. And I think that there is very good reason to be hopeful. I was on a commission looking at sexual assault in the military, and I know how much the generals, even in the chain of command, are sensitive to this and are maybe even over-prosecuting now because they're so afraid of saying no that they're saying yes to even cases that are not winnable, that are not, it, it's a he said, she said. But 
I think there is some progress being made in the military. So I do want to say that things are better than when she served, but they aren't good enough. Yeah, that that seems fair. Um, Moving from the military to public institutions, Barb, you had flagged earlier this week that there have been some issues at the University of Michigan, which is a, a research medical facility. And interestingly enough, I had a similar experience um, here at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where um, a doctor who's older and politically and religiously conservative shared with me how deeply concerned he was that they would be forced to stop teaching the abortion procedure in medical school, which is the same procedure that they use for an incomplete miscarriage. And he said, you know, what are we going to do? Well, we, we won't be able to provide care for our patients. Our patients in essence, you know, will be left to, d- to die, will have inadequate care. So, Barb, how do you see this issue sort of writ large of medical, major medical institutions? Yeah, I think this is one of those collateral consequences that people don't really think through when they talk about ending abortion. You've got all of these major research universities that perform abortions, they do research on abortions, and they attract students who want to go into obstetrics and gynecology. And I think all of those things are going to suffer If it suddenly becomes illegal in a state, you know, in Michigan, there's a 1931 law on the books that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, would revert to life. Joyce, you've used the phrase zombie laws. It's one of these zombie laws. We have just had a a lawsuit successfully enjoin that statute. So I think there'll be more litigation as to whether that comes to pass or not. But in all these states where abortion is going to be banned, if they've got major research universities, they're going to have to deal with this issue. The Michigan statute uh, does have an exception if necessary to save the life of uh, the the pregnant person. But what's interesting, the the University of Michigan just put an article out, kind of a a trade publication to other research universities about just some of the things you're going to have to start thinking about as we await this Dobbs decision. And one of the things they talk about in here is like, what does that really mean to be life-saving? Currently, they perform a lot of abortions uh, when there is a problem in the mother, but it might be something like um, there's a 50% risk to their life because of um, severe high blood pressure. And so the best medical decision would be to terminate the pregnancy. But do you have to have 100% certainty that the mother would die without intervention Or oftentimes they discover uh, cervical cancer during pregnancies because of the intense examinations that go on. Oftentimes those pregnancies are aborted so that the mother can go through uh, radiation and chemotherapy. But if they're carrying uh, a fetus, they would decline those treatments. Is that to save the life of a mother? So there are all kinds of complicating things that they're beginning to work through about this. But the bottom line is going to be that if abortions are illegal in states like Michigan or other states with these major research universities, people aren't going to want to study here. People aren't going to want to teach here. uh, And they're going to lose a big part of what um, they are accomplishing in terms of research and care. So uh, it is one of those very large byproducts of this myopic Uh, focus on ending abortion rights. I want to add to what you mentioned about collateral damage, Barb. There's a movie called Birthright, A War Story. Um, It's the product of Sivia Tamarkin, who is a wonderful producer, director, and it points to all of the collateral damage, including the fact that even now, many doctors do not know how to do an abortion to save the life of the mother. Uh, 
ectopic pregnancies. There are doctors who aren't trained in this anymore because of these laws. And so I, I would like to add to our show notes a link to Birthright, A War Story. I think it's one of those movies that will put in stark contrast all of the unforeseen consequences of Roe being tossed out. So one last collateral consequence for today, because this I know is getting pretty grim, but unfortunately, I just don't think that there's a saving grace on this topic. And so one of our jobs will be to help you consider these collateral consequences that perhaps have not gotten as much attention in the media spotlight as they could. Um, But the final one, Kim, is something that we have talked about, this notion that there are states where criminalizing abortion is on the table um, and legalizing or or, or rather delegalizing abortion by reversing Roe results in making abortion a criminal act, a criminal act for the doctor, a criminal act for the woman who's pregnant, perhaps for other people. You know, really to use RBG's metaphor for abortion, it's putting the state's boot back on women's neck. So what are the risks here as we enter this uh, era where instead of having rights, we're engaging in criminal conduct when women seek medical care that's an abortion? Well, the one thing I want to highlight, uh, in addition to what we've already talked about, is that that could essentially criminalize pregnancy and criminalize health care in a way that can be very detrimental. A lot of the responses that I've gotten, I'm sure you've gotten um, over this entire debate is, fo- you know, talking about, well, if people wouldn't get pregnant or if they would wait till they were married or this, you know, these really antiquated ideas as to what abortion is about. But what I want to talk about are the women and men, people of all gender, who are looking forward to expanding their families, who want to have children, who willingly plan, very much plan their pregnancies and may come to a point where they have a complication, as you talked about, particularly black and brown women. Black women are four times more likely to face a life-threatening complication during their pregnancy. Hispanic women are two times more likely to face a life, two to three times more more likely to face a life-threatening complication during their pregnancy as compared to white women. So what are you going to say? They have to say, we have to forego our life because to save our lives would be to commit a crime. And it's not just that. It's people who miscarry a horrific traumatic experience with the uh, procedure that is needed in order to remove that miscarried fetus from the woman's body be criminalized? Would they have to, again, put their life in danger, potentially their health in danger? And then think about, there are some folks who believe that, for example, IUDs are essentially abortion machines, that they cause an abortion every month. This might be TMI. I have an IUD. I have never used it as a method of birth control. I have used it. It was prescribed to me to deal with three very debilitating health conditions that it helped me with tremendously. My migraines, uh, my polycystic ovarian syndrome, and depression. (laughs) These are the things that help me be a functioning human being. But having that in some states, if you read them to their, uh, uh, if some folks have their way, IUDs would also be criminalized. So it would literally be potentially criminalizing health care. 
So these are the the consequences that we have to think about. One more that I'll add is the last time I was on Meet the Press, uh, one of the people Chuck Todd interviewed was the governor of Mississippi, where this Dobbs case is based. And he was giving the talking point that, well, these laws are not about punishing women. They're about protecting children and providing resources to children. When asked what these resources would be for these women and families, he talked about things like expanding the foster system in Mississippi so that they can handle the additional children that would be put into it and also expanding resources uh, for child protective services. You don't have to believe me. Go back and look at the transcripts of Meet the Press. This is what he said. So it is more important that children be born in order to be put in foster care or child protective services than to save women's life. I, I just I don't know what to say to that. It's really mind-boggling. And, and hey, Kim, thank you for sharing um, your personal story and, and making the connection between contraception and health care. Because I think for a lot of people um, who have had that experience that you've had, it's uncomfortable to talk about. It's not something that's come to the forefront. I think one of the unfortunate fallouts from reversing Roe is that we're going to all, including Barb, have to get comfortable talking about things that we don't really want to share. I mean, this is very private sort of experiences. And yet to advance policy, to get people to focus on all of the problems created, it's really forcing women to tell their personal stories and I perhaps resent that as, as much as I resent anything else that's going on in this space. Yeah, Kim, let me say thank you for sharing that personal detail, because I think it is really enlightening uh, to people who think about uh, contraception solely for the purpose of birth control. And it's shocking that that could become illegal if yeah. Roe is tossed out. And I, I want to share two other things that I heard recently that are equally shocking One is that a woman was ordered to bed rest during her pregnancy because it was an at-risk pregnancy. Now, talk about the state getting involved beyond belief. That means that she can't take care of her existing family. She can't work. She's ordered to bed rest. And another is Arizona just allowed a lawsuit by the estranged spouse of a woman who aborted at eight weeks, totally Mm -hmm. legal, even in Arizona, And he sued for his deprivation of his parental rights to have a love. Well, you know, our favorite part of the show is always the listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet us using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, Keep an eye on your Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. And we always get so many. One of the most um, fun parts of our conversation is choosing which of the questions we're going to uh, discuss. Um, And so we've got three good ones um, to discuss this week. Let me start with this one. It is from Mary in Woodbury, Minnesota. And she says, what is your take on recently released books containing significant developments involving Donald Trump that went unreported for more than a year. Is it a crime that these details are held back? Jill, you're the political memoir author. What do you think? (laughs) Well, let me just say, I won't be buying any of those books, and I would advise other people not to buy them. In terms of whether it's a crime, mm, 
could be misprison of a felony if you know about it and don't report it. It also could be dereliction of your duty if you're a cabinet member and have an obligation under the 25th Amendment to take action when someone is committing crimes in your presence. I think it's awful. And I, I, I know Kim will want to weigh in on reporters' obligations to report things, which is maybe different than a cabinet officer or someone in a position to really do something about what's going on. But I personally would not let someone make money by withholding information that could have made a difference in impeachment, could have made a difference in the 25th Amendment being applied. And so that's my answer to Mary. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is something you already alluded to is uh, that obviously if you are someone who has taken an oath of office or is a public official who is uh, whose job it is to put the American people first and you hold back on relevant information that would do just that in order to sell a book for profit later um, – uh, that that is that that is a, a dereliction of that duty, and there should be some consequence to that. There is a difference between that and journalists who uh, do not take that oath. And often, what could happen is journalists are given some of this information only on the condition that they cannot immediately release it, or or, or some other. Um, constraints that are put on their ability to publish this information. Again, you can think you are perfectly within your right to think that it isn't right and and vote with your pocketbook and not buy those books. Um, but yeah, I think it, that it's a terrible thing, especially depending on what it is. When democracy is at stake, when the security of the American people is at stake, when the integrity of an election is at stake, when you're talking about doing things like um, ordering protesters to be gassed or shot or whatever. Um, those are really horrific things that I think if they come out in your book, you really should be ashamed of yourself. That's a really good point about getting in information that's sort of embargoed. I've always been sort of um, looking with great disdain at these journalists who are holding back to sell their books at a profit. But um, you raise a good point, which it may be they were only given that information uh, under the condition that they hold it and, and don't report it until later. So, all right, I will hold back some of my spite you don't um, have to buy the book. <laughs> Our next question comes to us from at Gina294, who asks, why do you suppose the judge did not dismiss the Sussman case for lack of materiality? Joyce, you have thoughts on that? You know, I do. This is a really great question, and I'm going to answer it with my appellate lawyer hat on and say that not only is the judge protecting the record, but secretly... Um, the lawyers for Mr. Sussman were probably happy to let this go a little bit further than to dismiss the case flat out before trial. Eh, maybe not all that happy because they don't have to worry about an appeal. But in reality, what the judge is doing here is he's giving the government the opportunity to air its evidence. The government will put on the evidence that it would have to support materiality. And the judge can actually reconsider that motion to dismiss, can take it up. I suspect that the defendant's lawyers will make it at the close of the government's evidence to dismiss for failure to establish a material element of the charge of lying to federal agents. So we could see it happen there. Um, but there is this bias that judges have in favor of letting the parties put on their evidence before they make a full ruling in some cases like this. And I think that's what we saw happen here. 
Yeah, it's very different from a civil case where you see these motions for summary judgment. And that's because in civil cases, there are usually depositions of all the key witnesses. And so before trial, you know what it is they're going to say. That doesn't happen in criminal cases. So you have to let the trial play out to actually know what the record is. Um, our final question comes to us from at Barb Gal W. Well, I'll take this one since it's another Barb, a Barb to a Barb. Um, she writes that Catherine Colbert said on PBS that stare decisis means one cannot overturn a decision simply because one does not like it. Please describe the rationales that can be used to overturn a decision. This is a great question because it is not simply because, as Justice Alito's um, draft opinion in Dobbs suggests, because they believed it was, quote, egregiously wrong. That's not enough. Um, there is a famous quote by Justice Louis Brandeis that said, it is better that the law be settled than that the law be settled right. And that's because we need to know what the law is for clarity and reliance in our own affairs. But sometimes a decision is so bad that it should be overturned and, and that has happened. Um, Brown versus Board of Education overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, which had held about the separate but equal doctrine. But there are four factors that courts are supposed to consider, not just that they don't like the outcome, but the factors are, has our understanding of the facts or law changed since that prior decision was rendered? Um, have people relied on that prior decision in their own lives such that it would be disruptive to change it now? Uh, has the rule proved unworkable in practice? You know, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but now that we've applied it in the real world, it's really been very difficult. Um, or has it become inconsistent with other law that has developed around it since the time it has been considered? And so those are the factors courts are supposed to look at. Um, and what we're seeing now, I think, is a disturbing trend. Clarence Thomas is a big advocate for this, of just saying we should be able to, uh, to overturn anything we believe is egregiously wrong. And that, of course, is not how it's supposed to work. It really substitutes just the opinions of the justices who happen to be on the court at any one time in history from this idea of developing precedent over time through legal doctrine. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea or other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Pear Eyewear, Policy Genius, Athena Club, and Honey. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag SistersInLaw. I swear, though, it's like we're at the point where we just have to laugh because everything is so vermished. It is. It's true. so what? What was the word? Vermished. 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 Is, is that Yiddish? Furmished. Furmished. I've heard Mashugas. What's that one? Mashugas. And I've heard Verklempt. What does that one mean? That's more like. Verklempt is crazy. Crazy. What's Mashugas? Crazy. It's all crazy. And what's the one you just said? The new one. Crazy. No, no. Furmished is messed up. Yeah. Furmished, like with an F. Yeah. M-I-S-C-H-T. But it's furmished. Furmished. That's a new one. I like it. Yeah, I haven't heard that one either. I say oi and stuff, so I, I feel like I need to broaden my, broaden my vocabulary. We'll have I have to a Meshuggah um, pin, Yiddish and I have an oi pin, in case anybody wants oi to vey, borrow that's one. A good one. 
You have a meshuggah pin? I do. Yes, someone to wear sent it, it to me. It's just a so crazy person, a crazy looking oh, person. That's a good one. <laughs> but the Oive says Oive. So I got it when I, I went to see the Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Roof. They oh, were that's selling really Oive nice. pins. And that's really they were good. also selling um, mirrors that say, oh, Joyce, what's the right word for a beautiful face? Shana Punam. Shana Punam, yes. That's what so it says. I have to say, when I was in a, a college band in Michigan, um, we gigged events, like we played weddings and other events and to make money. And so we had to do both weddings and bar and bat mitzvahs. So we learned how to um, do have a nikila. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Can and you we would it? attach it. Um, not right now, but we would, we had this. <laughs> It's set up that we would attach it to September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Like we could go from Earth, Wind, and Fire right into having to get so because everybody's up dancing to that song, they love it, and then we go right into it, and then you know the chair goes up, and it was oh, that's so great. Okay, this is for when we all get together in Chicago. Kim's gonna have to (laughs) say it. Say, Abigail. 